Today's episode of Candid Conversations is not suitable for children. Parents, please listen to this podcast without your children present. You may choose to share portions of this podcast with them later, but please listen to it first. I look back on it as certainly a time when I was just focused on doing something very evil, but God was for his reasons intervening and I look at it as just a series of divine interventions that were examples of his grace and mercy because I certainly didn't deserve it. I deserved to die and I deserved to go to hell. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. For the next two weeks on Candid, we welcome Thomas Terrence to the podcast. I first heard of Thomas in a talk from Amy Orr Ewing while I was in Australia. My wife, Lindsay, and I read his book, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Radical Reconciliation, and we were captivated by his incredible story of transformation from hate to love, from death to life. Before you hear the first part of our conversation, I want to set the stage for you. On June 30th, 1968, Thomas Terrence is bloodied and lying on the ground in Meridian, Mississippi. Eager to prove his allegiance to the Ku Klux Klan, he has just planted a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman. But the SWAT team has foiled this plan. He's been shot multiple times. He's on his way to a long prison sentence, and it's the best thing that will ever happen to him. In the 1960s, he was a high-level operative for the KKK. Now he's a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, serving as President Emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute. How does someone with true hatred in his heart, even to the point of murder, experience such a radical transformation? Before we begin, I want to let you know that this story might evoke a lot of different emotions for you. You might feel angry when you hear some of the things Thomas did. You might feel uncomfortable as you hear some of the things he believed, and rightly so. I hope Candid is a place where we can wrestle with these things together. I also hope that you are encouraged by the incredible change in Thomas's life, the kind of change that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish from hate to love. Now, on to our episode. I grew up in the late 50s and came of age, uh, so to speak, in the 60s in Mobile, Alabama. And um, it was a very traditional southern town, and it was totally segregated. Black people lived in their part of town. White people lived in their part of town. Uh, It was a society that people today probably would have a hard time imagining. And that began to change in the early 60s. And that's where things went off the rails for me. But prior to that, I had been influenced a lot by uh, the Southern culture, 
family members fought for the Confederacy, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. My whole worldview was uh, influenced by the culture that I was in. Yeah. So I went to church uh, in those days down in Alabama. Um, there are way more Christians than there are people. Uh, <laughs> so it didn't occur to me to uh, question uh, whether I should go to church. And my mother wanted to make sure that all of us were there every Sunday. And um, and so um, I dutifully went along and went to Sunday school and big church after that and, right. you know, sat through lots of sermons. But it never penetrated my heart and mind. I was becoming more and more aware at about age 13 that According to the teaching, you know, I, I was at the age of accountability, and so uh, now it was uh, on me uh, to um, make a decision about Christ. And so, um, being a Baptist church, you can imagine they didn't fail to talk about heaven and hell. And I knew I didn't want to go to hell, and so <laughs> right, um, I made a profession of faith at age thirteen, baptized that night, I think it was. But all it did was was get me wet on the outside. It didn't change me on the inside. You know, I was um, a baptized lost person. Now, I don't think I'd ever heard the word discipleship. Mm. Um, and nothing about growing in the Christian life, anything like that, which probably wouldn't have mattered anyway, because I was just thoroughly dead in sin. Uh, but I just went on about my business and continued the things that I was doing before. My life didn't change at all. And um, actually, as time passed, it got worse. But that didn't bother me because, after all, I, you know, when I die, I'll go to heaven. Growing up in the Deep South during this time period, were the sermons sort of leaning into some of the political conversations that were taking place, or was it you know, just sticking to the sort of exegetical preaching through the Bible? What were you kind of listening to in the church when you were growing up? Well, to be honest with you, I don't have any idea. I <laughs> you weren't listening. <laughs> I can't remember. Okay. But I can tell you this. If it had been pro-segregation or pro-desegregation, I would have remembered. Sure. So my assumption is that it, w- it just stuck to preaching and teaching the Bible without right. reference to any of the political right. issues of the day. So let's recap for a moment. Thomas is growing up in a church-going home, but with no real biblical commentary on the issues going on in the culture. Next, as you'll hear, his hometown of Mobile, Alabama, would begin the process of desegregation which was a major step forward in American history. But unfortunately, many churches were not supportive of the desegregation movement. And we'll see that Thomas was one of those people who may have been going to church, but God's word was not taking root in his heart. He was becoming more a product of his culture than of the faith he claimed to profess. And that had a serious implication for the next chapter of his life one where he became increasingly radicalized. When I arrived at school to start my junior year, I found the 
campus surrounded by federalized National Guard troops to ensure the peaceful admission of two or three black girls. And um, literature was being distributed by some folks opposing this. And um, so I got some of the literature and began to read it. And I got additional literature and then met some of the people distributing the stuff and talked with them. And before long, I was I was drawn in to a way of thinking that was um, much more extreme than what I had grown up with. Right. Basically, put it in contemporary terms, I had been exposed to propaganda, racist, anti-Semitic propaganda, anti-communist as well. Right. And um, I bought into it, and then it seemed plausible. Of course, I was just a high school student. I didn't have a, a breadth of uh, reading and learning and critical thinking skills to be able to process this very well. Right. Uh, so anyway, I, I bought into it, and the people that were distributing it, older people who were quite happy to explain all the nuances. And, uh, you know, so I looked to them for guidance and just got kind of drawn in quite easily, I think, into that and um, became more and more obsessed with it all. Right. And if you're dead in sin and blind to spiritual truth, you're much more vulnerable to believing such nonsense than you would be if if you were alive and the Holy Spirit was working in your life to open your eyes. Okay, so you're in this process of being radicalized in some sense. How's that sort of taking shape in your life? Is that coming out in a visible sense in any way? Well, yes. Um, it took the form of harassing black people when I had the chance. Uh, those two girls uh, I mentioned that desegregated the high school, making nasty comments to them and um, Jewish students, and then kind of progressed from there, making threatening calls to local rabbi, painting a swastika on the synagogue. And okay, let's pause here. This reminds me of a lot of the political extremism that we saw during the last election cycle on both the right and the left. This should be a cautionary tale to all of us how prone we all are to political extremism and the us versus them narrative that our culture and the media are always trying to push. It was the Civil War all over again. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not unlike what's been going on here in the U.S. for the last several years, more broadly. And um, it's just a time of social upheaval. And when you enter into periods of social upheaval, the more intense it is, the, the more disoriented people become. It's like, you know, everything's sort of thrown up in the air, uh, things that were stable before now just floating out there, being blown away by the wind. Or, and so the traditions that people had lived with for 
a very, very long time were being attacked and yeah. undermined. And, uh, you know, folks were saying, well, what in the world is happening? What, you know, where are we headed? And there was a sense of we we're besieged by the federal government and by liberal social workers and civil rights workers and that sort of thing. So it, it created a climate yeah. uh, that really was, it was kind of like a wartime occupation uh, type thing. Like, you know, the people in France that were under the Nazis when they took over France, you know, they, they knew they were occupied, but they, they, you know, so it's, it's that kind of a mentality that, that was very, very common in that day. And right, right. So organizations that were resisting and opposing this various ones at different levels of society and with different methods were quite active. And so I got involved at a certain point. I, I thought, well, somebody needs to do something. Right. And, um, so I joined with a group over in Mississippi. I didn't become a, an official member, but I got involved with a group there called the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, right. which was the most violent of all these groups. And um, I got involved right at the end of its um, heyday. And that's where things spiraled down quite rapidly for me. Yeah. It all came to a crashing halt one night. I went to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi. He had spoken out publicly about the Klan and denounced it. And um, he made himself, so to speak, a, a target. And so I went along with another person, a young school teacher from Jackson, Mississippi, who was a part of the, of the Klan, to deliver this bomb. And about somewhere between 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, we pulled up in front of his house to put it on his carport, and shots rang out. Turns out there was a SWAT team, 26 men concealed behind trees and bushes, knew that we were coming, and they opened fire. I was hit as I ran back to the car. I dropped the bomb I had. I'd gotten close to the house, up the carport with the bomb, and uh, uh, dropped it. And that was a miracle right there that it didn't explode. But I spun around, ran back to the car, and I was hit with a load of double off buckshot in my upper right leg. Somehow managed to get to the door of the car. And the person with me, Kathy. Ainsworth uh, reached over, tried to open the door, help me get in the car. Bullets were flying everywhere from close range and punching through the car right and left. And um, so I was able to get in, start the car, speed away. In the process, she was hit with a round of rifle fire. And she died on the seat there next to me. Things were moving very, very fast at that point and a police car had appeared out of nowhere and was on my bumper and the guy on the passenger side was blasting away with a shotgun and so they chased me for about 15 blocks I think it was in this uh, residential neighborhood and 
blew out the back windshield and then hit the tires. My car came to a, a screeching halt and they rammed into the rear and I got out. I had a submachine gun on the front seat and I opened fire on the police car and, um, uh, the officer on the passenger side with, was getting out with his shotgun and he uh, took three rounds in the chest, one of them in the heart. So, so his partner ducked. And when the clip emptied my gun, I dropped it there in the street because I I was gushing blood just um, from where I'd been shot earlier. And um, so he, he then popped up and fired on me with his pistol. I was hit again. For some reason, he didn't carry on. Opening fire. Yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, it gave me a, just enough time to get out of a line of fire. And um, I collapsed behind a house right there at the site uh, and um, was just losing a lot of blood. Uh, oh, gosh, with five minutes police, state troopers, FBI agents were all over the place trying to find me. And uh, a small group of police officers, I think it was four of them, shining their lights all around. Then they saw me there and came up very cautiously, got right over me, turned off their lights and opened fire with their shotguns. And um, I was hit twice in that um, encounter um, from a range of probably three feet, maybe. Uh, wow. And um, they turned on the lights after the shooting stopped, and they saw that I was still breathing. One of them pulled out his pistol to um, finish the job, and at precisely that moment, an ambulance driver came up who was on the scene and heard the shooting, uh, wanting to know if, you know, if he could help. And so they couldn't um, finish me off, and I was loaded on a stretcher and taken to the hospital. So that was a miracle, for sure. It genuinely sounds like a scene from a movie, right? I mean, it's hard to believe that I'm having a conversation with someone who's been through that and, and, and having conversations that you and I have had about different things. Uh, it just sounds so removed. Um, how do you sort of look back at that you know, that very intense moment. How do you personally, theologically, how do you look back on that time? Well, I look back on it as certainly a time when I was um, just focused on doing something very evil, but God was, for his reasons, intervening. And I look at it as just a series of, of divine interventions that were examples of his grace and mercy because I certainly didn't deserve it. I deserved to die just like Kathy Ainsworth did. And I deserve to go to hell. But God, and this will puzzle some people, why in the world would God be merciful to somebody like me? But he was, and uh, even in the shooting of the police officer, the uh, three times in the chest, once in the heart, he didn't die. Right. That was a miracle, 
So it was a miracle there at the initial shootout that I survived that hail of gunfire from all those men. It was a miracle that the police officer didn't die. It was a miracle that, you know, shooting from just three feet away, I survived that. And so how do you make sense of all this stuff? Yeah. Well, it didn't make sense at the time. But, you know, once I came to the Lord, my eyes were opened. I began to realize that God had some purpose for my life and that he had kept me alive in order to fulfill that purpose. And um, then, then I, I saw that, you know, it's, there's another example of this. In fact, there's more than one. Um, but Paul, we don't describe him this way, but Paul was a religious terrorist going and rampaging through the city of Jerusalem and then heading up to Damascus arresting all these people, throwing them in jail, and trying to force them to recant. But God had a purpose for his life. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, God must have a purpose for keeping me alive through all of this because I should have died numerous times. Yeah. So you're admitted into the hospital, obviously under arrest. What are sort of those next steps in your story and through that, I guess, what is your thought process about what had just happened to you in that moment? Well, my thought process was that someone spilled the beans and that's how they were able to uh, know about what was planned and be there waiting. And so I spent a lot of time and mental energy trying to figure out who that was. One thing I did not do, I did not repent and right. come to the Lord because I'd been baptized. I'd made a profession right. of faith. So that didn't even enter my mind. Right. And I didn't see anything wrong with what I was doing. Uh, I didn't consider it sin. I considered it, you know, fighting for God and country, huh. just like someone would if they were in the military. Right. Um, so I spent a number of weeks in um, the hospital with some incredible pain from the wounds that I had and um, eventually got to the point where I could be put in jail and spent, I think, five months in jail. was then um, just all by myself in a solitary confinement situation and um, just continued, continued to um, think the way I did. It seemed so hopeless at one point, you know, I, my whole life revolved around this now, this ideology, this this set of beliefs. Yeah, you're, you're entrenched at this point, right? Thoroughly entrenched, and it's what you could rightly call an idol, right. an idol of the mind. People have all kinds of idols. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. A perpetual idol factory. <laughs> Indeed it is. And it's, you know, it's not stone or wooden idols today, like right. it was in biblical times. It can be all kinds of things. And um, so ideologies become idols. And that was the case with me. I was uh, blinded and deceived by this idol. And now that I had been arrested and was certainly going to be convicted and sent to prison, um, 
my life was just devastated. I mean, I couldn't carry on the fight anymore, you know, right. locked away. And so, you know, I came to a point of increasing depression and then kind of despair. And there in the jail cell waiting trial, I tried to commit suicide. I thought, well, that's the best way out of all this. Nothing, nothing in the future for me except misery. So why not end it now? And, uh, I had been given pain medications every day by the jail personnel, and they didn't wait around to see if I actually swallowed it. So right. I saved up a, a good bit of that stuff and took it all uh, one night, expecting I would wake up in heaven. Because you were saved. I was saved. <laughs> well, had I died, I would have woken up in hell. But God had mercy on me again. And I woke up with the worst feeling I'd ever had in my life. Worse than any hangover from drinking too much. But there I was, still alive. And um, so anyway, I muddled on and had a trial. lasted two days, I think. And I was convicted, sentenced to 30 years in the state prison in Mississippi, which was regarded as one of the worst in the country at that point. So I, I went there, and the only thing on my mind was, well, how can I escape from this place and go back to what I was doing? Yeah, and get back to your cause. Back to my cause, uh, worshiping my idol. Hmm. So it took about six months. I recruited a couple of other inmates and made contact with some of my friends in the clan planned out an escape that uh, worked smoothly. And before they really knew what had happened, we were a couple of hundred miles away from the prison in a densely wooded area outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, we were very pleased with ourselves. We thought we really pulled a fast one. So I'd been standing watch. And one of the other inmates came and relieved me about half an hour early. I went back to the tent that sat up there and, uh, oh gosh, five, maybe 10 minutes at the most had passed. I heard this incredible barrage of gunfire right up there where I had been. And it turned out that the FBI had learned of our location, again, inside information. And they came heavily armed machine guns, grenade launchers, shotguns, sniper rifles, all, all the artillery uh, that you could imagine. And so this guy who was had just relieved me early was standing in that forward position, so they saw him first. And they knew that we were heavily armed, had hand grenades and uh, automatic weapons and things like that. And so... They were not taking any chances. He was killed instantly in that hail of gunfire. And wow. then they, uh, the FBI chief from Mississippi gave over the, a bullhorn, gave the opportunity to surrender. And I, uh, myself and the other guy, we uh, did that. And we were taken back to the prison. And I was put in a little six-by-nine cell. Uh, where I spent uh, the next three years. 
But um, also got five more years added to my sentence for escaping. So almost successful escape, recaptured back into federal penitentiary. And uh, what begins this, the next step in the journey? I guess in that moment, are you still entrenched in that worldview, that radical mindset worldview? More than ever. Wow. And it's not a federal prison. It was a a state prison. Oh, sorry. State. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so when I got back, well, after settling down a little bit, I, I tried to assess my situation and see if there was any way of escaping from there. But I had to finally conclude that there was not. So just tried to make the best of a bad situation. You know, life, you've heard this, I'm sure, life is hard, but it's a lot harder when you're stupid. <laughs> and That's an that excellent quote. <laughs> that was me. Uh, good grief. <laughs> I was still in this, just a total fanatic, in spite of everything I'd been through. Man, I've been doing some stupid things. Right. All in the belief that I was a patriotic American fighting for God and country and that I was the good guy and, you know, I was against the bad guys. But um, anyway, you know, there I was stuck and no way to get out. And all I could do to keep from going crazier than I already was, was to read. And um, so I started off with um, all the racist, anti-Semitic books that I hadn't gotten around to yet. And, you know, I read, read that type of material and, in, in one of the books, uh, it was uh, a book on fascist political theory. And it, I, I found, you know, references to different philosophers, and it prompted within me an interest to read classical philosophy. And so I got Plato, Aristotle, uh, Marcus Aurelius, and um, went through all of that. And now, I'm not saying philosophy will lead you to Christ. Um, <laughs> Many have tried. Yes. Usually it will take you in the opposite direction. Right. But uh, but it was the instrument that broke down the current entrenched worldview that you held. It was. It was, it was kind of pre-evangelistic uh, in a sense because the two things that I came away with that, that just sort of really gripped me were, uh, first of all, that there is such a thing as um, truth, absolute truth. Right. And that it's there to be discovered. We don't create it. It's not something that is a human invention. You know, it's, it exists independently of what we wish or prefer would be the case. And so seeking truth was a great, challenge for human beings to seek truth, to know truth. And then the other thing was um, the well-known comment of Socrates, that an unexamined life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, well, you know, that makes sense. I should examine my life. And uh, as, as I'm going about the business of seeking truth, and I'll seek truth wherever that takes me. Yeah. 
wherever that takes me, I'm going to seek truth, no matter where it might be. And so, you know, I continued reading, actually reading some conservative political philosophy. One of the books I read debunked anti-Semitism and racism, not as the main thrust of, of the book, but just in, in a couple of pages, he, or well, several pages, he, he addressed that. And um, he basically uh, put the, uh, the pin in the balloon and let all the air out for me. Uh, right. it, it's just like, gosh, it all collapsed right there. Um, and I realized I had been in the grip of error and total nonsense. Uh, you weren't the good guy anymore. Not the good guy. No, no. I was basically a fool. I had been deceived like many other people. So that really worked to take away my animus toward Jewish people and black people. I, I thought, why do I hate these people? You know, yeah. there's no basis for it. I've just been believing lies. Um, I came to a point where I felt drawn to read the Bible, and particularly the Gospels. And uh, it was there that I found Jesus reading through the Gospels. The Holy Spirit opened my eyes, enabled me to see what I had never seen before. And I was, I was given repentance, which I'd never had. Wow. I'm not sure I even knew the word. Right. It was all just believe in Jesus and you'll be fine. Um, yeah. Well, of course you got to believe in Jesus, but um, you know the message of the New Testament is repent and believe the gospel, right? And so I brought, was brought to a place of conviction for my sins and shedding of a lot of tears and sorrow for what I had done. And uh, one night, this played out over a number of days, and I got on my knees one night and prayed and very simple prayer and ask Jesus to have mercy on me and forgive me of my sins and take over my life. And that's what happened. Something changed inside of me. And uh, the next day it was different. I mean, I was, I was alive and alive to God and spiritual things, hungry for the Bible to read it more and more and more yeah. and um, to pray and to live for God. Yeah. Those things have stuck with me now for over 50 years and strong as ever. And just God's grace. And the more I read the word, the more change came into my life. And, yeah. You know, God gave me grace. The Holy Spirit was working and helping me to love others. So quite a radical transformation, not in that uh, you had arrived all of a sudden, but you know, obviously there's a process of sanctification that you're still going through, but, you know, some people's testimony is uh, sort of incremental and sort of slowly learning more, growing, and then there's that point of uh, hitting things over. But for you, it seems like it was sort of this uh, almost an overnight episode where the, the transformation seemed immediate in that sense. Well, I would say that um, the way I would put it is that New birth or regeneration is instantaneous, right? But that 
if it's genuine, is always followed by sanctification, which is lifelong. <laughs> right, right. So I've been in the process of uh, reconstruction for 50-plus years now, and, um, you know, God's been very patient with me and very kind and helping me to grow, but I still have plenty of growing to do. We all have plenty of growing to do in Christ. I want to end the first part of my conversation with Thomas Terrence here. It is a compelling conversation and one that I do not want to end abruptly. If you are like me, you have a lot of questions and are curious to hear what happens after his dramatic transformation. If you do, join us next week for the second half of our conversation. I can promise you, you will not be disappointed. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. And perhaps next episode, we will mention you on the show. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.